0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast. As a reminder to our listeners, you can subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Or you can also visit our website at newbooksinlatinostudies.com, where you can also... Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast. As a reminder to our listeners, you can subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Or you can also visit our website at newbooksinlatinostudies.com, where you can also access, stream, or download any of our previous episodes for free. Today's episode features a conversation I had with Kelly Lytle Hernandez and John McKiernan-Gonzalez at the 109th Annual Meeting of the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association, held earlier this month in Kona, Hawaii. Kelly Lytle-Hernandez is an associate professor in the Departments of History and African American, or Black Studies, at UCLA. She is one of the nation's leading historians of race, policing, immigration, and incarceration in the United States. She is also author of the award-winning book, Migra, A History of the U.S. Border Patrol, published by the University of California Press in 2010. Migra explores the making and meaning of the U.S. Border Patrol in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, arguing that the century-long surge of U.S. immigration law enforcement in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands is a story of race in America. Her forthcoming book, City of Inmates, Conquest, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, to be published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017 is an unsettling tale that spans two centuries to unearth the long rise of incarceration as a social institution bent toward disappearing targeted populations from land, life, and society in the United States. It does so with six extraordinary stories detailing when, why, and how the dynamics of conquest made Los Angeles, California, the carceral capital of the world. John McKiernan-Gonzalez is assistant professor in the Department of History at Texas State University. He is a leading historian of race and public health in the United States. He is the author of Fevered Measures, Public Health and Race at the Texas-Mexico Border, 1848-1942, to 1942, published by Duke University Press in 2014. Fevered Measures examines how the United States Public Health Service built its first medical border in the Texas-Mexico borderlands and how Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American, and black communities responded to the drawing of this border across their communities. His next book project, entitled Working Conditions, Medical Authority, and Latino Civil Rights, examines how Latino communities Sought to transform medical authority, a tool often used against them, into an instrument for social justice. This project examines this complicated process in Texas, Chicago, California, and New York. My conversation with Kelly and John focuses primarily on their scholarship to explore how historians conceptualize, investigate, and explain the history of the U.S. Mexico border region. In particular, we focus. Uh, into the, we focus on the history of policing Mexican bodies across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands through the Im- implementation and interpretation of both immigration and public health policies. As always, I begin by asking our guests to tell us a bit about their personal and professional backgrounds, particularly how they came into the study of uh, history. We begin today with Kelly and then move on with John.
1: I really developed a passion for history from my aunt, my Aunt Alice in particular, who's an avid reader of African American history and would talk to me quite a bit as a child about the importance of the past and the the shoulders that we we stand upon. So she's an incredible storyteller and she really captivated me from Mm. from a young age. Now, how I came to my particular area study, which has largely been in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, issues of policing, issues of incarceration, immigration, that really comes from the fact that I I grew up on the border. I grew up in San Diego, California, Mm -hmm. during the 1970s, during the uh, 1980s, when border enforcement, immigration policing was really a palpable I would say terrifying presence in everyday community life, um, largely for Latino and Mexicano families. I'm not from an immigrant family, but I I watch the terror every day. Um, I have very clear memories of being in elementary school and hanging out with friends on the playground. And one of my my friends, a little girl, was sobbing. She was crying because her uncle was gone. Um, He had been uh, taken the night before. And that, that really settled in my soul about what it means to have family members taken away and snatched away. Um, so I saw, I, you know, I experienced that with friends. I experienced that with um, fictive kin networks. And it didn't get better as the 80s and 90s went on, it just got worse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, La Migra, the Border Patrol, was patrolling the metro stations, the tram stations, bus stops, schools, and as we're heading into the, the time of Proposition 187, hospitals, everything, every place was a site of enforcement. Um, so that was something that always I saw and I recognized everywhere we went.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I was in college, I began to do a lot of community organizing around these issues, my college years really overlapped with Prop 187. Uh-huh. And so as college students, this was you know, one of the major political issues right. um, in California at the time. So I worked with a, a community-based organization, a health organization, actually, John, um, called Casa de los Hermanos. And it really provided health services to um, migrants, largely undocumented, but not only undocumented, um, but most of the people who were living out in the canyons. So we would go out and we'd provide um, condoms and safe sex education. And um, again, as we slid into Prop 187, we were delivering babies out in the canyon. And for me, this was an incredible experience of being with the people in the canyon, learning about their lives and their struggles on a really day-to-day basis. Should we take our kids to school today? Or is this going to be the day we think we might get raided or that they might get picked up on the way home from school. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of decisions that people were making. So for me, um, I really wanted to research and write about these communities that I saw forming out in the canyons. I I found them to be powerful, resilient, intelligent, durable, and so maligned, and so poorly understood. And I wanted to to research and, and to write about these communities. But one of the things I knew is I couldn't do that alone. To study undocu- mm-hmm. the undocumented is incredibly difficult for mm-hmm. historians. I didn't think I could do that. Some historians recently have been doing that really difficult legwork in the archives or reading against the grain mm-hmm. and through the archives. But right. I didn't feel capable of doing that. But the one thing I knew is that there was a boogeyman
2: mm-hmm.
1: against which everyone measured every decision. And that boogeyman is La Migra. Mm-hmm. It's the border patrol. Whether or not they're really gonna come, it's the possibility that they might come, which dictates every decision. So these are these kinds of experiences that I had growing up in the border region and becoming involved in political organizing around Proposition 187 that led me to my scholarship as as a historian, someone who had this passion for history given to me by my aunt, and I blended it with the experiences I was having on the border and went to write this book on the history of the
0: U.S. Border Patrol. That's, that's wonderful. That's, uh, I even remember Prop 187. I think I've, if it was 92, I must have been in, in middle school, and even our middle school, which, oddly enough, was more of an a... I grew up in Chula Vista, so close to the border, mm-hmm. but uh, our middle school was mostly white. But even there, we still had a walkout. There was still a walkout. And uh, so it, it did shake, I think, a, a number of different, you know, uh, communities and, and kids. I think you know. You mentioned the movement. Uh, you know, being getting involved with it in, in college. Um, I didn't realize what it was then, but now looking back, it's uh, it's been neat to see how it it crossed so many different you know, grade levels and a number of people really involved with it. So it's great to hear how that that drove you know in interest in scholarship. Uh, John, how about uh, how about you? Well, I'm going to start with the negative. My
3: my parents were both teachers. Um, and teaching and graduate school was the last thing I wanted to do. I was a teenager when my mom was doing her graduate work and I was like, that's just miserable. There's no way I want to do this. Um, I I think my, and my mom is an inveterate storyteller. I like your Aunt Alice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think um, my, my interest in sort of like the connections of health and history um, happened in my year between high school and college, where I was at the University of Alabama temporarily, and I worked with the Student Coalition for Community Health. And what they did is that they placed me in Lowndes County, um, for which is between Montgomery and Selma, known as Bloody Lowndes. And they placed me with a family that had been you know, um, Actually, the sheriff's family, uh, Sheriff Haynes, who um, had been part of the Black Panthers. And uh, my job was to uh, organize the health fair to get people to come. And I heard people, um, it's probably completely unethical, talk about their pains and the way they're connected to their experiences and their histories. And I was getting a history of Lowndes County through the medical record about what it meant to be um, living in Lowndes County, living in public housing, the kinds of things and opportunities that opened up and the ones that weren't there. And I was like, Wow, if I want to hear those kinds of stories, I should become a doctor. So I did pre med in college and I was an art history major. And after graduating from college, I went to the only place you could be Latino in this country, according to me, which was Chicago, which is half Mexican and half Puerto Rican. <laughs> um, and it was, and I, after three months of sleeping in my friend uh, Francisco Dominguez's closet, he's now a judge in El Paso. Um, I got a job working for Cook County Hospital, and the day after I got the job, I got laid off. Um, and then a month later, I got a job with the Cook County Department of Public Health working with HIV, and I wanted to work with uh, Spanish speaking communities because um, that was my job opportunity. I didn't get to talk to that many people in Spanish. Um, but my frustration there, which I think helps explain the book, is that people kept on talking about Mexicans as immigrants and new arrivals, and after a while I was like, like new for the last 150 years, I think you can see sort of like the rhetoric of the time, um, coming through there, when I realized I didn't wanna be a public health person, and then the political conditions changed, that we, if we talked to people about HIV and got them to t- take the test, they also had to give their names to the state.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: I was like, ah, I don't wanna be involved in this process, and I deferred graduate school for a year, it's like, I'll give up all my friends in Chicago and go to uh, Michigan for five years and do something else and do a PhD that allows me to do history medicine Latinos because that's what I want to do. Talking about um, how angry I was with health establishment and how amazing I thought my communities were. Um, and um, I, it worked out. <laughs> um, and the book is actually about how public health Um, authorities responded to um, the movement of black, Mexican, and white people across the Texas-Mexico border um, and how it related to theories of health and then theories
0: about black,
3: Mexican, and white people at the
0: border. Thanks for that. No, and it's, uh, it's a similar thing. I mean, I, I really enjoyed hearing, and I read that in the introduction of the book as well. For both of you, you mentioned these experiences and how, uh, you know, your, your own activism or you know, work with organizations uh, led you into the, the past and uh, the scholarship that you look into. Um, being at a, we're at this conference, and uh, normally what we do at these types of conferences, we bring scholars together, and they, they talk about shared themes uh, in their work, and... Uh, both of your books uh, happen along the border, and uh, so I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to discuss what, what I saw were some, I think, uh, commonalities in, in the way that we speak of the border and, and, and the border region. Um, and the first, uh, the first that I wanted to talk about is the border itself. Um, there's, you know, in both, in, in popular discussion, it's obviously, you know, spoken as the border in, in academics. Uh, spaces. We speak a lot about borderlands and more of it as a border region and both of your works um, in, encompass that type of a, a framework. It's looking at the border more as a region not just a fixed political boundary that that is crossed or right but uh, something that that is removable in ways that, that can travel. Um, so i wonder if we if you we could take some time in talking about uh, you know those shared themes in your work and how particularly in your book uh, in your work, you you notice that you notice the the border itself being a you know, whether it's an idea more than just a boundary that that travels with people or travels with ideas. Um, Kelly, would you like to start us off?
1: Well, sure. But I hope that we have yeah, a conversation about this because I have a lot to learn from John um, on this. Um, so a lot of the work that I have done is the way in which the creation of the U.S.-Mexico border in particular of as a site of crime
2: mm-hmm.
1: that by the physical movement across this line in the sand or down the belly of a river constitutes a violation of law, which itself is a creation, right? So mm-hmm. all crime is created by the state, um, becomes carried in particular bodies because of racialized Notions of that crime, or in the new work that I've been doing on the criminalization of unauthorized entry, how it's the product of a particular targeted political campaign to criminalize mm-hmm. certain pathways of migration, certain bodies that move across um, international boundaries. So for me, in thinking about the border as a child, as a scholar, was that there is a really hard reality to it. Those fences and the the sensors and the lights and the patrols that are on that line, that is absolutely true and should not be um, diminished in the narratives that we tell. With that said, the border has a life hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from that site because of criminalization. Right. Because what happens there becomes carried on, on the body so that's what I was always so interested in as well as one of the things I was so interested in is how particular populations became so aggressively policed and targeted within everyday community life for something that happened hundreds of miles away or ten miles away um, and why that something that happened over there was so damn important anyway Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid asking my dad like dad why are because the border patrol was doing like a raid they're arresting some people so right. why are they going after those guys right. and he said because they, they think they're illegal and there was a tone in his voice
2: mm. of
1: that's a BS project happening right. over there mm-hmm. what you're watching right now you should suspect of. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so it always, he didn't say any more, but that was for me to investigate as a scholar, as a graduate student, as to historically why those people right there standing in front of me were being handcuffed, put in a van, and taken away from their families. Mm -hmm. So that border, for me, as a matter of, of law and order and criminalization, that's how it lives beyond that line. And your work does it in a different way.
3: Um, I mean the hardest thing for me and actually, and I, and I want to give like, um, like if I thought it was hard I, I can't imagine how much harder it was for Kelly because she had even more records that were off the grid for people mm-hmm. um, but uh, what I did or what, what I was told to do is like I hear um, the public health department was really um, involved in El Paso why don't you go check it out So I did, and I ran across this riot, the famous sort of like typhus bath riots um, that happened, and I did not know how to put that in any framework, sort of like uh, working-class women, domestics, beating up, um, stopping traffic on the bridge, overturning streetcars. It wasn't – I was expecting to have to read against the grain for resistance, Mm -hmm. and there was (laughs) – so reading against the grain in that thing, a fist in the face counts as resistance. And I was like, um, how, do I, how do I say something smart about this? Like can sort of two here is retell the story. But the problem for me was thinking about what that meant and what happened before that and where those records are. So what turned out is like most of the records for what I did from 1882 when the United States, um, when the Board of Health was created, the first national thing, is most of those records were in the Southern quarantine stations. It was actually part of um, the South, part of, sort of like figuring out the Southern edges of the United States, or the Southern medical edge of the United States. And then trying to figure out, well, why are they in Corpus Christi? Why are they um, right. in Monterrey? Why are they in Paolo? Why are they back in um, San Benito? Like, why are they moving all over the place? Like, I thought this was a border study and I'm tracking these people in these different places. Um, and then realizing, and I think, Part of it, I think, was the Prop 187 conversations about where the border was enforced. Like the border is physically there and you do have a like large staff, but then the border between who gets to be somewhere and else is enforced in hospitals and streets and cars. And then thinking about that this federal medical border was first um, put into practice um, in the Texas borderlands and then moved to other places. Um, And I'm sure I'll be corrected on that, but for now, (laughs) (laughs) it's <laughs> <laughs> Texas and it was, um, and that really opened up to think about how this sort of like connected to um, both federal, how the feds intervened in the South, like they went from intervening for citizen, for civil rights or enforce the 14th Amendment to enforcing who has yellow fever, mm-hmm. and sort of like a lot of the people move, like... Governing travel was governing around yellow fever quarantines, and seeing the overlap between what we know about black bodies and yellow fever, or what was completely off about black bodies and yellow fever, also being applied in different ways to Mexicans crossing. But the hardest part was really trying to figure out where this fit within a national narrative, and um, and it really it's like thinking about moving borders. What really helped me think about power differently, mm-hmm. um, and I and I have to say the. The, the way of actual people, like when I shifted from thinking about surveillance to thinking about what people wanted, that really changed my the story
0: I was telling and the story I was researching. So was that more of uh, was I was just about to ask was that more of like your aha moment when you recognized that this border is mo- so mobile? I mean, when I read your book, both your books, it I kind of had you know that moment uh, of seeing how movable and the way the border could itself travel, you know miles either way, you know, this is not just miles into the U.S. border, right, Uh, but deep in, you know, down into Mexico, right, and that's, uh, there's been various ways that that's happened, you know, over time, but so is it that with the people, you know, somehow that well, you were able to recognize that there's a source. Um, I think my station committee had
3: those aha moments <laughs> before <laughs> I did, um, where people said, "Like, looks like you're thinking about a mo- moving border." Mm-hmm. Um, but I think thinking about what sort of like became meaningful is like, what does this moving medical border mean? So, like, when they mm-hmm. drew a line between Laredo and Corpus Christi, that would be like drawing a line from Baltimore to Boston, like stopping that kind of traffic. Right. And to think about the immense scale of trying to impose a medical border right there, it's like there's a really good story here. This mm-hmm. is really important. And no matter what happens, I don't know if the story's going to be told, but I'm going to tell it. It's, it's going to be told because I'm going to tell it. Because right. I don't think anyone else is going to take that interest at that time mm-hmm. period. Um, and when I read um, Dr. Kelly Ludler, now this book, I was just so impressed with thinking about the border patrol as people.
2: And mm-hmm.
3: when
0: No, and I sorry, (laughs) that's okay. I was, uh, that got me thinking, you talking about sources got me thinking about Kelly, you know, as well, with, Mm. you know, the way your uh, archives were so dispersed as well. Can you talk a bit about that experience, about trying to piece this history together, uh, how difficult it was and how it opened your eyes to the story that you tell?
1: Yeah. So, I've, I've just finished a second book, which I had a very similar archival experience where you think that all the records should be pretty easy to find in one place dealing with a singular institution, and that didn't happen to be the case Mm -hmm. at all. So it's always a hunt, right? The part I enjoy is being almost like a detective,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: you got to keep knocking on doors, keep talking to different people, follow hunches, not get um, distracted or down when the hunch doesn't work out and just move in a different direction. So for Migram, I had the blessing of running in to the right, Marion Smith, who was the librarian of the INS at the time, the right person who um, knew that the Board Patrol's records were available somewhere in the bowels of the National Archives, but no one had ever gone to find them. And so she had an old index, I believe it was from the 70s or something like that. She said, you could take this index and we'll give you a special badge. You can go back there and you could find them, <laughs> which I mean, I was super excited, wow. a second-year graduate student, I said, I, I'm on it, let's do yeah. this. But, you know, you get to the back of the bowels of the National Archives with a very, very old index, right. and you're lost you immediately. Get quickly, you get yeah. overwhelmed really quickly. You sneeze a lot, it's <laughs> cold back there, and I just dug through all these boxes, um, and I did find a lot of their, their records. And with that set of hints that were produced by the Border Patrol themselves, I was able to go out and track down other sources. The most interesting set of those additional sources, I think, have been um, that in the Border Patrol records, they kept talking about collaborating with a Mexican Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. I had never heard right. of a Mexican Border Patrol before. Right. So my ear, I just went, Doom, what is that? i got to find it. So I went down to Mexico and I was asking all the archivists, and they said, no, there's, there's no such thing as a Mexican Border <laughs> Patrol, and we certainly don't have the archive for that. I've never heard of it. Okay, I went to the next archive and said, I keep reading about a Mexican border patrol. No, there's no such thing and we don't have that. Seven years of this kind of process, um, I finally hooked up with another scholar in Mexico, Pablo Yankelevich, who had also been looking for um, similar records for the Mexican Department of Migration, which would have housed the Mexican border patrol. And I, I don't know what happened but somehow he got the address and I got the money and we worked together to get into those archives in Mexico City that aren't in an actual archive. They were in a warehouse and the warehouse was leaky and the records were falling apart and we would work in them and I got the worst case of pink eye I've ever had uh. in my, my <laughs> life just going through all these records. Uh-huh. But what that, that search generated for me was a lot of documentation of cross-border collaboration Mm -hmm. between the government of Mexico and the government of the United States, each for their own reasons, um, in controlling the migration of Mexican, largely workers, across the U.S.-Mexico border. And that was a transformative set of documents that challenged me to think, um, to reinterpret the U.S.-Mexico border, which I'd always seen as something that was created and enforced by the United States. It's a site of U.S. domination. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: But here I was watching, yeah, Mexican state actors enforce that same border, utilize U.S. state law for their own purposes. Right. And so it, it forced me to expand and reinterpret what the function of this place could be for different different actors.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I, you got me thinking a bit about, you know, when you're sharing your earlier experience of... Uh, seeing the policing of the border Uh, that became very real to me when my family moved down uh, to Chula Vista when I was around 10 years old and we took our first trip to Tijuana and I remember seeing the signs first you know those yellow signs with the family and the parents kind of dragging their children look like they're running right and I didn't really get it yet but then that made a lot of clear sense when I saw People actually, and this was what happened in the early 90s, it doesn't happen anymore because of the way they've tightened the border, you know, right, uh, in those areas. But you would literally see people and families running across the freeway. Uh, and it, uh, I don't remember if I actually asked my parents any questions, but I, it was just, it, it was so ingrained in my memory, and it's always been there. And I i don't even know if the signs are still up, but, um, you know, it's I can, I can relate to that experience and that, you know, of... Uh, and your book certainly, it, it provides wonderful historical context for understanding how that developed, you know, and as you mentioned, being a history of the Border Patrol itself uh, and of the Border Patrol agents in, in the early part of the book, right, figuring out how to implement immigration policy and having quite a bit of leeway with that.
1: Yeah, so the early part of the book, as you say, is really about In 1924, the United States Congress passes this massive immigration law which restricts much of the world from coming to the United States. And then they tell a couple dozen guys out on the border, go and enforce it. Well, that's an incredibly difficult task for any civil servant. And so I very quickly saw that the issue was that there was all this distance between the mandate from Congress mm-hmm. and the everyday people who were told to enforce this. And the guys who were hired, and they were all guys who were hired to, um, as border patrol officers to enforce this new 1924 law, they did it in their own way. Right. And most of them were from the border areas. So they took the customs and the culture and the hierarchies of the border area and they just um, injected them. into federal law, and in that process transformed the way in which U.S. immigration law was intended to work Mm -hmm. um, and made it far more narrow. This is not to say that the broader caste was going to be any more just. (laughs) (laughs) That the anti-Asian central elements of that law, if they had been more aggressively enforced, would not have been a better option. That is not the argument that I, I... Wanted to make or want to make, Um, but really to understand how U.S. immigration law enforcement became so targeted and concentrated upon Mexicans. You have to go to those border communities and understand the politics of class and race and gender and land ownership in particular Mm -hmm. um, for white men,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. poor working class white men, landless white men, Mm -hmm. and they are the ones who gave us the reality with which we live today.
0: Right. Yeah, and on the same topic of individual agency, John, in your work, uh, how did you see this manifesting with the implementation of, you know, public health, um, you know, mandates and programs along the border?
3: That's a really good question. And, like, I'm, you know, yeah, the yeah, and I'm suddenly health, right. um, realizing it. Um, well, it's, I mean, the public health mandate, um, when, the Fed, when, when, the, when the United States Public Health Service steps in, or before that, the U.S. Marine Hospital Service, and after that, U.S. Public Health and Marine Hospital Service steps in. It's a crisis. It's a crisis because um, local authorities and the people in the area feel that local authorities can't deal with that particular um, disease, whether it's yellow fever, whether it's typhus, whether it's smallpox. It's gone beyond their ability to cope with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they ask for the federal... So so in a sense, it's like, we want you to come in and help. Situation that said the majority of people who died in the borderlands died of old age, died of tuberculosis, died of dysentery, died of infant. I mean, the vast majority died before the age of five. So, um, died of hunger, and these were not crises. So, (laughs) these were the the crisis. What was that? These diseases people died in horrible ways, that versus you know the really nice way of just dying of diarrhea. Um, so it really struck people, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's morbid, but it, people didn't like dying of typhus. You died, you died internally, you bled internally, yellow fever, you throw up blood, um, and smallpox, you pop, your pimples become so big and you bleed to death. And this, it was horrible, horrible ways to die. And they were worried that this might affect, um, the American mainstream Americans. Otherwise, so people needed to step in and draw a line somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the mandate was to protect. What was considered America, not actually to establish a safe, safer conditions for people and then to prevent this from happening. Um, so the gist of my book is actually like before 1924 and then it's mm-hmm. sort of like how these um, medical quarantines then coexist with the border patrol and the ways they try to justify these quarantines with the border patrol when there aren't types epidemics in Mexico, when there aren't smallpox. Well, there are smallpox outbreaks, but they're not. there's more vaccination in Mexico than in the United States when yellow fever has not actually appeared since 1905. So it's like, how do they justify their existence? Um, now, thinking about individual agency, there was an aha moment when I decided to, again, trying to figure out things, just put the things on the map, like chronologically and um, in terms of where these sort of like complaints happen. Because a lot of my sources were Department of Treasury records. Of people and um, State Department records of people complaining to their ambassador about the way they're being treated. It actually wasn't medical records. If i had just been medical, the, the story would've been lost. And then mapping where these things happen in time to with the different uh, revolutionary coalitions that were in Mexico. And that's when, like, I was like, Oh my God, this is actually central to Mexican history. Mm. Like, Pancho Villa could care less about, well, not could care less, but like the way he sort of like responded to medical aggressions was by perhaps by sort of like having, um, invading Columbus or allowing people to resist in public against this. But then Carranza, who a lot of his source sources were in, financial sources were in Texas, This ability to move freely without being harassed by medical authorities mattered a lot to everybody on the border, and particularly to respectable Mexican middle-class people. So the Carranza regime was very active in trying to stop um, undue harassment of people. And when I saw that, the sort of like, you know, like, the 800 page Friedrich Katz book made sense, thinking about mm-hmm. Carranza made sense. And it's this act of mapping these conflicts in space, these legal complaints really opened up and pointed out how deeply interconnected um, or how sort of like problems on the bottom were connected to larger processes. So it wasn't actually individual agency, it was connected to larger social projects in northern Mexico. And I was so happy when I saw that. I, I was. I was like, I have a book, I have a project. Mm-hmm. This, this is a contribution. Mm-hmm. I know this now and other people will know this now in the future. And I'm, I'm so happy to think about that. And now when we look at currently, like it's, it's all about vaccination, mm-hmm. who deserves to be vaccinated and who doesn't. So right. if, I think some people think of an act kind of vaccination book, but it's actually a due process, like who deserves to be vaccinated, mm-hmm. who doesn't. And in the process, looking at that, in terms of thinking about the transformation, um, uh, Kelly Loder and Anderson Bocamiga talks about Mexican browns, or like the creation of these criminal bodies that right. need to be policed. And for before that, uh, what happens is these medical authorities go from seeing a vaccination scar saying like, oh my God, they're vaccinated, that's great, to seeing a vaccination scar saying like, this is proof that we can't trust them. Like mm-hmm. The, the, the mm-hmm. context changed the meaning of the body in particular ways. And I thought that was a really important point to make in terms of thinking about medicalizing or diseaseizing, uh, pathologizing uh, Mexican crossing.
0: Right. No, and that leads me to exactly the next thing that I wanted us to get to. This, the other very clear similarities it seemed to me between the two books is um, you know, the, 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 the policing of Mexican bodies or in, in some cases Mexican and you know, uh, black bodies. That's also addressed in, in your work, John. Um, so, um, Kelly, you you've touched on that um, in some of our, our discussion already, but could you talk a bit more about, um, you know, through your, your, your research, how this became so clear and apparent to you, that, you know, the focusing on uh, Border Patrol agents of associating illegality with the Mexican body and thereby policing it, you know, through, you know, a lot of what, uh, you know, the other strong thing in your work is law enforcement practice, right, uh, even in this, this first book. But that's tied to, essentially, what we, we call now um, uh, now the terms, for slipping my mind. Was it racial profiling? It's a type of racial profiling, right?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, again, this goes back to my youth. <laughs> <laughs> watching the patrol come into areas and pick off people of Mexican appearance, right? And leaving mm. the rest of us behind. So when I was young, I had a big afro and all that kind of stuff. But they would pick people off. And it became very clear to me, wait a minute, it's rare to be a black youth and not policed, mm. right? So now you got cops coming in who are armed and all that kind of stuff. They got their uniforms, they got their cars, and all of that, and they're not picking on us. That, too, made me very, very curious. Mm. And I see how they're targeting certain populations, and I was uncomfortable with it, and I didn't understand it, and I was deeply curious. So that was my training as a, a young person, seeing uh. how that was happening. Um, as a student, I very quickly learned about the U.S. Supreme Court decision um, Brignone-Ponce, which I believe is 1974 or 75, I forgetting the exact date right now, in which the United States Supreme Court decided, ruled that Mexican appearance is a lawful tool for determining somebody's um, immigration status Hmm. or presuming somebody's immigration status in immigration law enforcement so that if you are of, and I quote, Mexican appearance and are traveling on a road near the border, between the border and Los Angeles, and look to be moving away from the border, um, you can be lawfully stopped and questioned about your immigration status. Now, that's racial profiling 101, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that remains law today. So, when folks in Arizona and all that say, we're only doing constitutional policing here, Mm -hmm. what they're not telling you is that it is lawful for border patrol officers or people, officers engaged in immigration law enforcement to stop people of Mexican appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, So, that's how I became aware of this as a person from the borderlands and then as a a student, and I thought, wow, we have got to understand how the United States Supreme Court could come to that ruling in a um, post-Brown v. Board world, Mm -hmm. that that became logical and sensible and remains with us today. So those are the two things that I would say really pushed me to want to explore and open up and question racial profiling in immigration law enforcement, which I think most people regard as common sense it's not something we, we question, but
0: right. I did. And your book does such a great job, Kelly, of, you know, tracing that back, you know, historically, you know, that that isn't just, you know, a, you know, such a, a more recent, you know, in the 70s, 30, 40 years or so um, development, but that's a long-established practice, you know, of the Border Patrol and, and, you know, indeed ingrained, so to speak, in their institutional DNA, right, of how they do their policing.
1: Right, and it's become a logic. Mm-hmm. And it's a... Uh, It's a cycle of logic that it's very difficult for people to break, and I think that's the value of history in Mm -hmm. this particular moment is that it can interrupt what we receive as common sense and say, no, this was a construction. This was a set of decisions that were made at a certain point in time that we can unmake, Mm -hmm. that we can think critically about, and we can move against. So my work is is always driven from a political place, Mm I don't have a particular objective in mind. I don't know what the solution is. I want us to engage in that conversation. But I think that's where, for me, history is so valuable, is it opens up questions for us to say, hey, we should talk about why we do things this way. Mm -hmm. It's not natural. It's not law. And let's move forward in a more loving or human or humane way.
0: Well, I'm preaching to the crowd here with a group of historians, but you know that's that's what's so important about historicizing these types of practices because they are things that become taken for granted, you know, right? Um, seeing as you know normalized in whether the, the, as we're talking about the type of policing that is conducted, but to understand how it actually is you know constructed and developed and and and, and deviates at times so far away from you know intent and uh, you know is really critical part of our of, of both of your work. John, did you want to add anything else about, you know, the, the, because I associated when I, as I was reading, again, the books alongside each other, I saw, you know, again, the, the monitoring and policing of, uh, you know, Mexican bodies kind of going on in your work as well, you know, being associated, Mexicans being associated with illness, Mexicans being associated with disease. And there's, you know, there's, there's a bit of scholarship growing on that. Um, Anything else you wanted to add on on your part from your work? Um, Well, What
3: just, there's a bit of a Chamber of Horrors comment thing about to say right now Um, (laughs) (laughs) in terms of this is to me, I was, I mean, I was doing polish up research for the book to sort of like get it done. Um, And I ran across, again, trying to figure these things out is like after 1924, different, like, different border stations acted and performed in different ways. And um, what was really, Troubling to me was the way in which Abasa, which had a substantial Southern white population, a substantial Midwestern white population, um, and a growing like children of Mexican descent population in the area, um, the public health officer there was adamant about sort of like equating Mexican with um, not just with smallpox but with syphilis. Um, with other things, so the detainees, the Border Patrol would bring people over, it's like, well, let me uh, see if they have a, a dread disease, let me make sure I can permanently make sure they don't go back. And, and that's very much like one person can really shape a whole city's experience of migration. But what was even more troubling to me was the way that the agents in Eagle Pass, Texas, um, would bring uh, the school children in the Mexican-American school um, down to the baths to douse them in, a, in, in whatever they're using to clean the kids in vinegar yeah. and then sending them back to school. And then the harvest people were going to go pick the onions, had to go through the baths to get washed and then could go pick the onions. And it was ingrained into the, uh, El Paso Piedras Negras MO. And, hmm. um, And that to me is sort of like, in terms of thinking about common sense, that is like the farthest from common sense I can imagine, but a best example I know of common sense. Um, The other generative part of the book is, of course, thinking about um, different people's relationship to the medical border. Um, African American migrants and how they had to deal with this process, white migrants to Mexico, how they had to deal with this process. And the ways in which, and I think this is another important thing about medicalization, Isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like if you're sick, you want to get better. If you're having a baby, you want to have the best kind of health possible. And to think about sort of like um, this being a contested process. Like we, like people were getting treated for smallpox, wanted to be treated for smallpox in their houses, not in the abandoned leather factory there in Laredo. And to sort of like think about that as a sense of what it means to be belonging in a particular place and public health. Standards being part of that and being very much part of the conversation about what people deserve and how they deserve to be treated. Um, and in terms of, well, and I think that comes out of my experience in Chicago and my mm-hmm. wanting to be a medical student, and then thinking about places in the United States that a county with no hospitals, mm-hmm. like Lowndes County was at that point, no private medical practitioners, no public medical practitioners in post 1965. America. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for that. They did one th- the third thing I wanted to speak of, uh, us to talk about the shared theme in, in the works, is that of violence. Um, and we've been talking about policing either in the establishment of a medical border that identifies, again, illness with Mexican bodies, or the establishing the practices of, you know, a, a growing institution like the Border Patrol uh, and its association or tying its policing to brown bodies as well. Um, there's the the element of violence that that runs through both of these works. You know, uh, policing is in, is an incredibly violent act. Uh, it, it leads to or it leads to very violent acts, right? Uh, and at the same sense. Um, you know, the targeting of, of particular bodies for, you know, a, as a, a, a public health focus and, and making them walk through chemically, induced uh, you know, bat- bathing, you know, or sprayed with chemicals down so part to, to cleanse them is another, you know, very uh, humiliating There's the humiliation of it. It's also a very um, invasive. explicit, invasive, there you go, invasive act of violence. So uh, I thought we could talk about that for a bit. Um, you know, and and how this is seems to be the commonality I'm seeing here is they both of the narratives are occurring through a, a time of evolving U.S. state formation, right? So ingrained with both of these practices, where it's the policing of the border or the establishing of, of public health controls and, and campaigns or and whatnot, uh, you know, there, there's this element of violence that's underlying both of them.
1: Well, certainly, harm and disregard for for bodies, mm-hmm. right? That is a a commonality. Yeah. And. In many cases, we're talking about similar populations. I'll I'll let you go ahead.
3: Well, um, I mean, the act of um, doing a medical operation of doing surgery is actually incredibly violent. Hmm. Uh, The act of um, providing medical care, getting a broken bone, going straight, is incredibly violent. Um, but it's it 's a violence that 's done hopefully with the consent of both people or the number of people that are sort of like paid to arrange to provide this health care. but then when I look at sort of like like that's that 's state violence in a sense but' it's, but it 's not invasive it 's sort of like consenting and a lot of sort of the the kinds of operations these public health officers took, a lot of the violence that happened happened because they felt that the people they were protecting or actually preventing from being in there, couldn't understand. Um, They were too Mexican to understand modern medicine. Mm. Um, And that justified a lot of the actions of burning people's houses, of um, putting them to these chemical baths, of vaccinating people against their will. Um, But it was episodic Mm -hmm. in ways that... um, Like, by episodic, sorry, that was a really fancy word. Like, it wasn't all the time. It was just when people were called in to go to the Texas borderlands that you had these sort of, like, horrifying spectacles of state violence happening. Um, But I think the harder part is thinking about, like, the everyday kind of violence that gets accepted. I think Dr. – well, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I've been texting too long. Um, (laughs) Kelly does so well.
1: Well, and vice versa. I mean, I think what you do really well – is exposing the violence of everyday medical practice, or as regarded as everyday medical practice. We Mm -hmm. can look back 100 years out now and say, well, that's insane, Mm -hmm. right? But you situate it and position it so well that it makes sense within their context, which helps us to think about our own world and say, well, what makes sense to me now? That really is quite illogical, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this is the value of historical thinking, is that we can... See ourselves of capable of change; that we have interrupted common senses in the past, profound, deep ones, um, and we can we can do it again. Um, so that's. Although I, I'm very curious, John, your thoughts. The issue of the immigrant threat through disease seems to be still so present mm. with us. What is your your take on on all of this have we come have we come very far
3: or <laughs> <laughs> um i did not want to b- write a book that said um people were treated like bugs and like that would be the end of the analysis i did not want to say like people were dehumanized uh my mom um when she came just we've come to this country a number of times but the first time she came uh, they sprayed DDT on everyone in the airplane. She's like, I was an insect. You know, I felt like an insect, and I didn't want to do that again. Um, like, I'm going to go with um, looking at the different ways in which people reacted to um, the presence of disease in their community. I think is a really good way to point out that, um, like, the way you respond to someone who is sick is by finding out what they need, mm-hmm. not by putting them in a detention center and then shipping them off somewhere else or or quarantining them off there. And I think that um, like thinking about that is just comes out of sort of like being in college in the late 80s of dating myself, (laughs) 90s and being influenced by ACT UP and thinking about sort of like the push against discrimination and for um, humane uh, medical care. Um, So like thinking about, I mean, the um, the other one of the presidential candidates comments on Mexican immigration, like they bring disease, and they're not saying it's the best. Is like, I'm like no one. I mean, disease is something that happens. Like yeah. people, like you know, my like people die on the freeway all the time, but no one says cars. They bring death and destruction to where we live. I mean, right. Some people do, which which is a great <laughs> thing, but but how easily that just becomes part of the language, and then people are like, well, if they have. TB, they shouldn't be here, but if they have a cold, that's okay, like thinking about which diseases allow people to come in. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it's so um, appalling, I just find it very hard to even write, like to even like provide some things. Um, I mean, with H1N1, what was really fascinating to me was like, oh my God there's a large Mexican community in Beijing. Who knew? <laughs> or, uh, like, oh, look, the Chilean soccer team won't play uh, soccer with the Mexican team because they're scared of, um, of H1N1. Like, who knew this? Or like, wow, look, at look. so it exposed and made visible communities I didn't know existed. Um, so, I mean,
0: again, slightly Gothic look at the world. But. Certainly. Okay. Well, um, I wanted us to take a few moments uh, to also talk about your, your current projects and uh, um, you know about the directions that led you to them from you know these these which were your first books um, to where you are now. So,
1: sure. So I have a um, new book coming out with University of North Carolina Press. Uh, the title of the book is City of Inmates: Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And it goes from the day the Spanish invasion of California, 1769, 1771, uh, right up through the Watts Rebellion in terms of its empirical base. With that said, it really is a deep historical look at the dynamics of mass incarceration and Mm -hmm. what we're seeing um, have played out in the United States since the early 1980s. So it's, it's a really richly documented history out of the archives. It goes to 1965, but I'm hoping it helps us to think about the world we live in today. Um, so what that book does is it thinks about the rise of incarceration in Los Angeles in particular, which has the largest imprisoned population, not only anywhere in the United States, but as many people say of any city in the world. Uh, so that's right. uh, the city of inmates. That's the why I, I, I use that term. Mm-hmm. And I think that by studying Los Angeles, we can see the history of incarceration in new ways. So what Los Angeles brings into relief for us is maybe the dynamics of the history of the border and in the America West, questions of indigeneity, questions of labor and race together with indigeneity. And I use a conceptual framework known as settler colonialism mm-hmm. to think about the rise of incarceration as a project of eliminating targeted populations from land life and society. So we've done a lot of historical thinking about the rise of incarceration out of black slavery to Jim Crow to what Michelle Alexander so powerfully described as right. the new Jim Crow. Right. I'm on board with that. I think that is a strong, powerful, grounded, historical analysis of what we're dealing with. I just think that there's more mm-hmm. to the story. Um, The rates of incarceration for indigenous populations, the rates of police killings for indigenous populations in the United States are on par with or higher than um, black communities in many areas of the United States. We have got to think seriously about what is going on Mm -hmm. um, with black and indigenous folks in this question of human caging. Um, And it's those kinds of statistics that made me think, okay, I've got to figure out how these stories come together Mm -hmm. in some sort of way or on parallel tracks, but what is the conversation that's happening? The second component is that we know immigrant detention is the fastest growing sector of the carceral state in the Mm -hmm. United States today, and it has all these protections around racial profiling that other realms of policing don't have, and so we know it's a very dynamic growing sector of the carceral state. How does that fit into these extraordinary rates of indigenous and black incarceration um, and immigration control is one of the most highly racialized sectors of policing and incarceration. It's about 97% of the people who are deported are Mexican or Central American. Mm -hmm. That blows out of the water any other sector um, of jailing or Mm -hmm. imprisonment. So I went and I did a lot of historical research, found um, six stories that help us to understand um, these three dynamics of native, black, and immigrant incarceration in the United States. So those are the, the six stories that I tell about the sort of deep history mm-hmm. of our contemporary moment, and I won't bore you with those stories now. But
0: well, <laughs> I would love to be bored, so to speak, but I uh, oh, can't wait for that to come out. And it'll be in 2017?
1: 2017, April, May. Okay, so,
0: about that. so mm-hmm. not too far out. And uh, John, you have a, another book project that you're working on as well. I would love to hear more of your stories <laughs> as well.
3: Um, and uh, the, the second book project is called Working Conditions, Medical Authority and Latino Civil Rights. And I have to say that it emerges from two places. Um, the first one was actually a conversation with Kelly um, in Austin where she introduced me to the concept of cop history like, I do copies, I read the books, but you know, like thinking about what the cops are, their social history, things like that. And what's missing uh, from my book is Latino doctors. Um, mm. They're not there, they're, they're sort of there, they're on the outskirts, they're not quite there. And, um, and <coughs> so I was like, ah. Oh. And the other thing that really kind of jump started this was a commission I got from Stephen Pitty and the National Park Service to do. A short national history of American science, American medicine, American Latinos. And if you've seen how richly a document, like, Little Encounter <laughs> in Laredo in 1899, this was, like, the first time I actually got to think about the national. I was like, I, I don't believe in the national. Like, this sounds quite like a lot of sense. Like, I think, you know, people experience the United States differently right. in California, in Texas, and other yeah. things. And to talk about what Americans do, Seems like crazy. I mean, not, well, it seems like really hard to jumble that thing into something that is recognizable. But this is what I had to try to do. So what I, what I first did is try to figure out, this is like, where were the Latino physicians in Texas and how it related to um, the status of the community. And um, there were more Latino physicians in Texas in 1903 than there were in 1920. There were only three licensed and certified Latino physicians or Spanish surname physicians 1920 and then it opens up in the 1950s and I wondered, like oh, where does this fit in nationally and then I started looking at the AMA directories and I was like it's really interesting dynamics no no doctors in Colorado very few doctors in New Mexico very few doctors in California um, lots of doctors in Chicago lots of people trained in the Midwest lots of people trained on the East Coast um, not so much in Florida. And then this changes, the training begins to happen in the South, in historically black medical mm. schools and historically white medical schools during the Jim Crow period. And this is when uh, physicians become civil rights leaders, like Hector Garcia right. or some things, like these wonderful respectful physicians. And um, people ca- talk about this being really important. But I was like, but, you know, like having dealt with physicians, I'm like, Are physicians like the best person you want to do to lead your social justice campaign? (laughs) Uh Is this what you want to do? So um, I'm thinking about sort of like thinking about physicians shifting place and what they're called upon to do um, in different, I call it civil rights instead of social justice struggles uh, since the first national medical directory up to 1965. And I end with, it's gonna something around backy and sort of like, what happens there? But it's really, really interesting to think about how this allows us to map um, this, the different quarters and sort of like how transformative uh, world post-war World War II California was for um, aspiring Mexican Americans, how trans- uh, it was transformative in Texas. Um, but then also thinking about the expulsion of um, Cuban and Puerto Rican and Mexican positions from places that they were, like the Midwest and um, New York. And that, to me, um, is sort of like the same thing. You map things like, this is a much better story than I imagined, it's thinking mm. about medical schools as um, migrant hubs and shifting migrant hubs. And when uh, a family that has enough money to pay for someone's um, tuition is accepted and then it is not accepted, some mm. things. Um, so so. Like the first black physician in Puerto Rico was trained at the University of Michigan. Right. Um, and it was the, the post Civil War moment people were like, "Sure, why not?" Um, and then how that disappears, and so sort of like, so um, thanks to this commission about thinking nationally, is so then thinking about how medicine becomes a political term. And I think the other thing that I've noticed is as sort of like people embrace the possibility of changing the medical and quality of life conditions that they live in, doctors become less and less relevant to the struggles, and uh, that to me I think is. Um, my line is public health belongs to all of us, and it's really nice to see that seemingly to work out in practice and practice in what I've seen in these documents. You,
1: you sound like a, a Black Lives Matter activist that our safety belongs to all of us, right? That it <laughs> cannot be given away to uh, officers
3: of the state. I cannot tell, like sort of like the... Um, how much Black Life Matters has like shifted the conversation about our relationship to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I feel like, like people must have felt in the, the civil rights, like it really changes the terms of the conversation. And like, we are all responsible for this,
0: not, mm-hmm. you know,
3: that it's really,
0: um, yes. I, I entirely agree. I, a, uh, I've had to take moments to pause, you know, over the last couple of years, as, as we've seen, you know, the Black Lives Movement you know, evolve and shape out of, you know, you know the, the events that have happened. And it's, you know, being a, a student of civil rights history and just loving to, to read that narrative and study it myself, I've had to stop and pinch myself and realize we're witnessing now this is exactly what it was like. I've often wondered what was it like to see this movement happening and and why didn't the public respond, you know, in more supportive ways for various movements, you know, not, of course, just talking about the black freedom struggle, but various, but, and now we're seeing, again, to, to see this happen now, um, I think, uh, you know, has, it's, it's hot. I've had to continually get myself to, to pause and really think about this and appreciate what, what we're witnessing and, and how, it, as you stated, how it's really shifted the conversation. Because so often, you know, as it is, those that teach you know, these type of movements Um, When we sometimes as students grab onto uh, how the ways in which conditions haven't changed, Uh, a comment that's often come up in my classes has been, you know, well, what good did it do? What difference did it really make? But when you really pause and you see, right, you know, the the policing, if you will, that's going on of law enforcement, (laughs) you know, by the citizenry, I mean, that is, it's not something new, right? Because, you know, we've seen this happen in the past, right? Um, but it is something that's that's being raised to a whole nother level, um, and and it's being crossed against you know a number of uh, of different spheres of public society and, and policy you know levels. So.
3: I mean, one thing that I think was sort of like to me was generating some of these conversations, and then Black Lives Matter sort of like really expanded was um, the undocuqueer movement, mm-hmm. and sort of like again people like I'm coming out, you think I have no rights? You need to. You need to sort of like think and encompass um, these things. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful series called Awkward on YouTube that I completely recommend, which is about all the awkward conversations people have around um, being undocumented. So like, uh, and it's yeah. a really wonderful way to think about sort of like um, the kinds of relationships and the way that they shape it. And then sort of like thinking about how awkward, like Black Lives Matter really sort of like raises that like, awkward, you don't take our presence, our shared presence, seriously. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, the other thing I was going to say is that a number of the physicians I track um, end up working in African-American communities. Um, like there is something happens in the medical school training so a lot of them are in Chicago or in South Central these, mm-hmm. these black physicians who might have been Latino before this and I really think there's something important going on in these places mm-hmm. as well in terms of thinking about the relationships and kind of love people
0: get from
3: being a doctor in these communities mm-hmm.
0: well I want to thank you both again yeah, our time is is spent but uh, for taking time out of what's been a busy few days here um, uh, for you know this conference and to sit down and, and to speak with with our audience, uh, it's been a pleasure. So thank you, John, and thank you, Kelly. Well, so,
1: thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.